the mic working okay? Yes, good. Um, nice to see everyone. Uh, a lot of people know me, but in case you don't, I am, as Tim said, Matt Williams. I am fellow disciple of Jesus and a husband to Mercedes and a dad to Caleb, who's four months old. Um, I don't know if he's going to give himself a cheer. No, he hasn't learned to do that yet. He will. Um, <clears throat> and my main work now is at the Jubilee Center, which bizarrely enough is going to be based about 10 meters away. Um, so it's a kind of cool thing that's, that's come around. And my real hope today is that people will know the presence of Jesus Christ. That's my real hope in a way that really deeply impacts on daily life. And I know it can be hard, maybe especially in summer, to actually hear God's word. Um, and for our minds not to wander, I find that really hard. So let's pray as we get into Hebrews for the, for the penultimate time. So Father, thank you that in many times and many ways you've spoken. I pray that today you'd speak through your Son by the Holy Spirit who's present here and give us grace to listen. Amen. So Hebrews, all through the letter for nearly a year now, um, You've been coming back to it again and again and again. And the focus really is, in some ways, straightforward. It's on Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ. But some of the descriptions are really quite complex and a little bit alien, especially the use of Old Testament concepts for, for those of us who aren't Jews. And what I want to emphasize, it's, it's the person and not the ideas or the concepts that always is to the fore. And our direction of travel is always towards a person, towards him, towards Jesus. And we end up somewhere which is not just a person in the vague sense, but in a new city, the enduring kingdom that Tim talked about last week. And so that's the journey we're on. That's the direction we're going. But the question we have is, how do we actually get there? And that's what our passage today answers. How do we get there? So it's Hebrews 13, 1 to 14. If you've got Bibles, definitely please have them to, to be able to see in front of you. Let me read this now. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Amen. So I want us to 
try to get our heads around this, first of all, because it is dense. Um, so we begin, we've got a series of five quite concise, quite clipped instructions. So number one, keep loving each other, um, but also open your home to strangers. Um, and in practice, by the way, most of the people that the early church welcomed would have been other Christians from elsewhere, but they're also complete strangers as well, uh, sometimes needing emergency help as they walked along the road. Um, and it's really interesting to me that it says on the homepage of St. Barnabas' website that this church is an extended family and that we share the goodness of God at the same time with everyone. So I think we've got the same thing here. We've got the intimacy of a family and also the openness to others. And at the moment with the Ukrainian crisis, there are very practical ways in which we're becoming aware of this. So that's the first instruction. But then number two, we're also told to go out and not just welcome people in. We're told to go out, really in our minds as much as anything else, as much as practically, remember prisoners and those mistreated. Again, I think the context it probably applies mainly to, to family members, and there's a reference to Timothy in verse 23, who's in prison himself. But again, it's got broad application, and there's a connection in this church, both through the work Sarah Coppin's doing and in the Kairos project, literally going into prisons, literally being with people who are mistreated. Thirdly, reminded in really stark terms about the seriousness of marriage, then moves on to focus on having too much money. And then number five, we're told to remember and imitate spiritual leaders. So these would have been first the, the people who brought the gospel to the Hebrew Christians. Actually, some of them apostles, some of the original people who had walked around with Jesus. So that's verse one to seven, five very concise instructions. And then verse eight comes a little bit like a bolt out of the blue. Jesus, always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. How does that follow? And how does it kind of connect to what comes next? Well, I think that there is a, there's a rationale in the train of thought that the original teachers in verse 7, they haven't become irrelevant. Their example of faith holds because Jesus himself hasn't changed. And for the same reason, these Christians shouldn't get carried away with the more popular kind of religious trends of the day. It's not totally clear, I think, what these teachings were. They're described in terms of the more ritualistic aspects of Judaism that Jesus' sacrifice has actually fulfilled. And avoiding this kind of thing would actually put Jewish believers quite outside of the comfortable establishment. It would have been a bit of a socially disruptive thing to do. So they're reminded that they shouldn't actually be trying just to put themselves at the center of society anyways because they're seeking a city that's elsewhere. Their aim is elsewhere. And this helpfully brings our passage back to where we left off at the end of last week in chapter 12, where we're told to set our eyes on a permanent home that's better than anything imaginable. So what's this saying to us? Where's, where's the focus for us? Because at first glance, there's not much more in this passage than a reminder of basic Christian living. It's kind of like discipleship 101, isn't it? Love each other, be hospitable, Pray for those who suffer, be sexually moral, don't be greedy, learn from those who carry the real gospel, and don't stray for it for the sake of fitting in with everyone else. And we could read this and think, okay, clear enough, let's just crack on, sermon over. It's a warm day, why not finish now? Um, but I think there's more to it than that. And there's something much deeper for us to grapple with. 
And it comes back again to verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Usually when something doesn't change, it's a bad sign, isn't it? It's because nothing can affect it. And when people don't change, that's usually a bad thing. And this has been a topic of conversation this past week, hasn't it? Maybe someone refuses to listen to everyone else. Maybe they're a bit emotionally distanced. Or maybe they're just hardwired in a certain way that's never going to change. And someone who's actually not going to change um, seems to militate against their capability of having real relationships. It's really hard to be in a proper relationship with anyone without being changed, isn't it? Yet here Christ is described as unchanging. It sounds like he's a bit aloof. Living in a permanent state of spiritual perfection that, that we can't really touch or, or get near. And this is quite a common image of God, I think you'll find. Even today, if you talk to people who, what their idea of God is, it might be a little bit like this. But it's actually a complete misunderstanding. And as always, uh, context, and especially the context of Hebrews, really comes to our rescue here. Because we're talking about the same Jesus who shared in our humanity, who became human, suffered temptation, suffered great temptation, suffered death, and became our high priest through this suffering. Again, priest is another word that sounds a bit aloof. But this high priest is given his own blood, own blood, and all the pain, emotionally, spiritually, and physically that involved, his own blood for our sin. And he continually intercedes for us, day after day after day, interceding for us every day. He cares. And there's more even than that, because this is the same Jesus who we're told in 1 verse 2 will inherit absolutely everything, because it's the same Jesus through whom, through whom the whole universe has actually been created. You can't actually go anywhere in time or space outside of the presence of God. Isn't that awesome? You can't. The past and the future belong to him. When Moses assures Joshua that God will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus, which is the Greek version of the name Joshua, he was right there, right there in Moses' day. All through the messy history of Israel and all its failures, he was there, and he was the one to whom actually their sacrifices, which were performed in, in all kinds of weird ways and often not the way they should have been, he was the one to whom all that pointed in the first place. And those words from Deuteronomy just quoted, they're quoted in our passage, but the assurance of God's presence takes on a whole complete new dimension in the light of Jesus Christ. He's not just a perfect spiritual divine figure out there. He's fully human as well. Absolutely fully human. And we can know him as human, not just as God. It's awesome. So not just the past and the future, but the present actually belonged to Jesus. He's not only the same in himself, but also he's the same in relation to us. He's utterly unchanging in being committed to us, in being with us, in being present to us. So the question is, what difference does it make? Okay, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always with us. His presence is here. What difference does it make? Well, potentially, none at all. And this is a danger. This is a repeated warning that comes out time and time again in Hebrews that we've got a choice. 
God's always there, but will we be? Because we, we can't just say, yep, Jesus died for my sins, all good, and then just merrily get on with life and think no more about it. That, that's not an option. Or it is an option, but it's an option Hebrews tells us just not to take. Because we're con- called to a continual act of faith, continually fixing our eyes on him, of believing, and not to become like the Israelites who, who experienced God's salvation and then perished in the desert, and they didn't hold on to it. It's a very specific warning that Hebrews gives us. And I think that phrase from chapter 12, keeping our eyes on Jesus, is a really important one here. Because it means we're actually knowing him as present right now. Not just as someone from the past, not just as someone who will come in the future, but as someone that we can actually have our eyes on right now. And it makes a huge difference to the the practical discipleship that this passage talks about. But even before that, I think we need to pause to consider the idea of actually knowing God's presence, knowing Jesus' presence. What does this involve? Because I think this itself is a practical exercise. I don't know how you see God's presence. Like Sometimes you can feel it's a sort of nebulous thing that only happens every now and again. Maybe special times of worship. Maybe in really rare events where God suddenly shows up. But the question I have is, how come we're not always aware of God's presence? If Jesus is always the same, he's always there 24-7, how come we're not always aware? Hebrews actually suggests to us that we can be, that we can choose to be. All this language about coming to him, all the language about the temple, coming into the temple, approaching the throne of grace, what it's saying is there's actually a way to him that's always open. We don't just have to wait and hope. We can actually go. We can actually make our way towards Jesus. The door's open. The thing is, though, that knowing Jesus' presence is something that we have to cultivate. It just doesn't come naturally. You actually have to set your minds towards him. You've got to reject other thoughts. You've got to be determined, really, to be so still and to know our God and not to give up until we encounter him. And that's not easy. It takes continual practice. And as a Christian, you keep on doing this forever and still feel like you've got further to go. And it's not just about being an individual in your room and sort of screwing up your eyes and thinking, it's all about me and God, all about me and Jesus. Those times we have before God, whether individually or as a collective, actually then shape the whole of what we do after that. And as I've been preparing this, I myself have been really challenged and started reading this 17th century book some of you may have read called Practicing the Presence of God. And this guy, Brother Lawrence, talks about how even in the midst of really practical day-to-day activities, he was actually able to know communion with God. Something in his spirit was always interacting with God, even if his immediate concern was on the menial thing that he had to do right in front of him. And I have to say, like keeping this focus is a genuine battle. It's really hard. Like I, I try to start every day, the day, um, if I can beat Caleb to the punch, I try to start the day with the Lord and try to start away from devices and away from anything that you can start looking at or um, flicking your thumb through. And from that, carry on in that place of devotion. That's the goal, that's the aim. But for most of my adult life, uh, I've actually been working mainly as academically, so either learning or teaching. 
Um, and often that's involved sitting at home on my laptop. Even before COVID, that was what life looked like a lot of the time. And I'm getting close to 40 years old, but I still find it harder than ever not to just drift onto BBC Sport, not to just drift onto YouTube, and not to keep flicking through tabs to check email needlessly repeatedly again and again, or not to fidget, or not to go get unnecessary snacks. Um, and I can tell, like, my experience is not unique. I can just tell looking at you guys, <laughs> this is not some weird thing that only I experience. Um, and what's going on? I don't think this is just an accident. I think we're actually living in a culture of constant distraction. I actually think that's, that's our culture. And we're constantly being offered another thing. It's a new information, a new message, another purchase, another video, another coffee or snack, a new relationship. I think pornography, gambling, and substance addictions are really just extreme and less respectable versions of this common problem. I think the way it sucks us in as well is this subtle idea that if I have these things, or if I have another thing, the next thing, it's going to satisfy me. Just like good junk food, though, you find it only makes you hungry for more. And before long, you're increasingly dependent. And I'm putting this on kind of individualistic terms, but this isn't really a private or a personal thing. If you think about the infrastructure needed to sustain the internet that brings these desires directly into our pockets, into our devices, it's one of the most astounding things humans have ever, ever achieved. It takes a huge amount of global energy to sustain that infrastructure. Our whole social, our economic, our political order really works in order to maintain this image of a world where we can have everything we want when we want it. There's a kind of imaginary reality where all this can be produced and consumed without any negative consequences for our primary producers, for natural resources, or even for ourselves, as the people consuming. It's actually a really powerful fantasy, and most of us wouldn't swallow it whole. As I'm saying this to you now, you're thinking, well, that's obviously not the case. But the stark reality is that we consume it in micro-chunks repeatedly, every day. So, what do we do? What do we actually do? Do we just reject this progress and say, okay, I'm going to listen exclusively to Johann Sebastian Bach, I'm not going to communicate through handwritten letters, and I'm going to grow all my own food? Some of that stuff is really life-giving and worth trying. But it's not realistic to completely pivot everyone's life to do that. You, you can't go back. You can't live in the past. You can't make up some kind of golden age where everything was fine. And plus, you can't deny the fact that technological development has brought us a lot of things which, which are good. Um, we've got much more potential for connection than we ever have, and identifying problems and sharing resources happen to degrees that you couldn't have even dreamt with, even when I was a kid, yet alone 100 years ago. I think we also shouldn't trash the basic desire to have more. It sounds strange for me to say that, but we've been created for an abundantly fruitful world. And in Christ, we've actually been given all things. I don't know if you notice that Paul says this at least twice. 1 Corinthians 3.21, Romans 8.32. talks about having all things in Christ. But that's the point, really, isn't it? It's in Christ. And a world order where we have constant access to everything that we could ever need, it imitates God, 
but it does so without acknowledging God. And I think we can see the fruits of this. You only have to look at what society looks like as it fails to get rid of violent division. It's all around us, especially at the moment we're aware of it. Abuse of power, right from domestic level up to the very top. And a self-centered carelessness about lives that are lived away from public view. If people can't see or hear you, then often in the whole system of things, you just don't matter. And I think the fruits of the Spirit, or the, or the fruits of life in the presence of Christ, which is really one and the same thing, are completely the opposite to this. And this brings us around to Hebrews 13 again, and helps us to see these discipleship instructions in a new light. Because pursuing the presence of Jesus, yes, it involves a personal and collective commitment to him, and it definitely constrains how we consume resources, definitely constrains how we use our devices and spend our time. But it's primarily not about what we don't do, and primarily about what we do. When we choose repeatedly, and in a really disciplined and difficult way, to live in the presence of Christ, we're actually absolutely satisfied with his love, both now and into this glorious future that we're promised. In that presence of Christ, we can love each other as brothers and sisters, because we don't need to use each other. We're coming from a place of love. We can welcome strangers because we don't have to be defensive about our resources. That doesn't mean that you just leave your door open and see who comes in. You have to be discerning. But you begin from that point of welcome. It also means we can have an inner stillness which puts ourselves into the position of those who suffer oppression. It's quite hard to do. If you're sitting comfortably, to actually remember being in prison or being mistreated as if that was you, that, that's an effort of imagination. It doesn't come naturally. It's hard, but it's worth it. We can also be present in relationships, and th this passage speaks particularly about marriage, but I think there's something that applies to all of us. Because there's this thing about the culture of distraction where each new attractive person you meet, temptation is to sort of go after them whether it's in a romantic way or not, whether it's a sexual way or not. There's a temptation that everyone new you, you meet who's kind of interesting, you sort of go after just that relationship. And the fact is, we're always going to be meeting attractive people. It's going to happen for the rest of your lives. Get used to it. But actually, we're being challenged here to be faithful in the relationships that we have. And there's so much unfaithfulness, both in sort of micro-level and macro-level, that happens through just pursuing new things at the expense of the old. Another thing we can do, as passage talks about, is, is to enjoy the things that we own. Be satisfied, be content with the things you own. Of course, that's providing you have your basic needs. And it's not the case for everyone. The, the scripture never tells people who are, who are starving just to be satisfied. But for those of us who have basic needs, we're told to be satisfied with what we have. And we can be free from this horrible, draining feeling that if only I had this thing or that much more money, I'd be happy. And by the way, the, the translation of 13 verse 5 is actually be content with, be content with the present things. Parousin in Greek. It's the present things. So the things are already there with you that you have. Be content with those. Another thing we can do is actually follow the leaders whose faith we respect the most not just the latest ones to release a video. 
And this is quite a big issue because all of us have come from places where we've had Christians who've deeply influenced us and we deeply respect. And the constant temptation is to almost be embarrassed about the people who are sort of from another generation. It happens in worship music too. I always wince when people slag off Graham Kendrick. I think he's great. Like, yeah, his tunes sometimes, but the words. Charles Wesley, even Bach himself I mentioned, there are things to hold on to, not just because they're traditional from the past, because they really grasp something about Jesus. And most importantly, we'll be able to discern what is good and bad in our world and reject prevailing trends where we have to. And if you look at verse 13, it doesn't say, let's go outside the camp. It doesn't say, let's be different, let's be alternative, let's just do the other thing. It says, let us go to him, to Jesus, outside the camp. In other words, where Jesus is, that's where we go. We pursue him. And that will dictate our social, political, and economic status, whether it leaves us kind of close to the center of society or not. So to conclude, knowing God's presence, it is honestly the most incredible, beautiful thing ever. Nothing gets anywhere near it. And it's because there's nothing more glorious than Jesus, who's the radiance of God's glory. But I think contemporary culture has a particular way of keeping us distracted from him. And it's a life and death battle. There's real evil involved. And the social, political, economic, environmental consequences, they're really plain to see. And so in various ways, even though this is a contemporary issue, actually this battle has been fought for the whole of church history, the battle to maintain hold of the presence of Christ. And the basic approach I think that we're given is really simple. It's the old Sunday school answer, read your Bible and pray. Sounds trite, but it's there for a reason. And Christians through history have also developed more specific ways to practice the presence of God, as that Brother Lawrence book, Richard Foster writes about the disciplines in a way I found really helpful. But let's remember this. Our goal is not actually to adopt a practice or a method or a ritual, but to know and love a person. Jesus Christ, our high priest, our closest possible friend, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.